As we get ready to get right into the word today, I want to just say to you, we are a church that believes in the altar. Come on, can I get an amen on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. service? We believe in the altar. And what I, when I say that, what I mean is we believe that God can meet you in a moment, in a consecrated space, at a consecrated place and time, and God can do something immediate, supernatural, that is life-changing, that is reorienting, that, that changes the direction of your life. I, I believe at an altar, people can be healed physically. Anybody with me on that? I, I, I thought for a second I showed up in the wrong church this morning. I believe that God can meet people in an altar and emotionally they can be healed. That God can take damage that's done and, and wounds that are deep and life altering and God can in a moment, the Bible says our minds can be renewed. I believe in a moment you can have an experience with God at an altar and can get revelation and direction about your future, about decisions you're making. And, and I say that and I take this Sunday to speak about altars because I recognize something that's very true. That we learn by what we say, but we also learn by what we see. And, and what we've seen in the last year and a half in this church has been worship experiences that are very much affected and influenced by CDC guidelines and social distancing and and, and it seems like everybody's, everybody had a personal bubble before, but that bubble inflated in the last couple of years, and, and now we don't really know, honestly. We're still figuring out, you know, can I shake your hand? Are, are we doing the fist bump? Are we, are we good? Where, do, where are you at with all this? What's this school year going to look like? And, and with all of those uncertainties, I didn't come to talk about those. I just came to make an observation that, that I want to be careful that we don't lose something of our identity in the process of navigating all things COVID. And what you need to know is that this church is an altar church. We spent a long time not, not we don't want to crowd people in. We don't want to make them uncomfortable. We try to spread the seats out. Now, this 10 a.m. crowd, you broke all the rules months ago because just too many of you like church at 10 a.m. That's the thing. You're the Goldilocks crowd, you know. This service is too early. This service is too late. But this service is just right, you know. Yeah. But I want to make sure that we understand that this is an altar church that we believe. And, you know, in fact, Wednesday night we were having a prayer gathering and, and we were praying about, I was leading in prayer about people being drawn to the altar. And, and I just had this picture in my mind, you know, the floor sloped in here. And I just thought, Lord, would you let the anointing oil be so thick and so slick that people just slide to the altar? That they just get in the presence of God and it just, you know, like the floor just starts to just raise a little more. And, and it ought to be that way. Not, not that we keep score in the church by how many people come to the front of the room. But when you get in the presence of God, it ought to be like a strong current in the river. You don't have to work to get there. Just pick your feet up, friend. Amen? And we believe in the altar. We are an altar people. And I don't want to just make a case for the altar today. I want to build an altar today. And I want you to go with me in Scripture to Exodus chapter 30, because it's there that God says that exact thing to Moses. Make an altar. Make an altar, he says. 
Altars are a place of transaction. I'll say it like this. Altars are a place where we do business with God. Anybody ever needed to do business with God before? In Exodus chapter 30, it begins in the first verse with those words, make an altar. And look at verse 6 with me now. He explains to Moses how this is to be done. He says, put the altar in front of the curtain that shields the ark of the covenant law. Before the atonement cover that is over the tablets of the covenant law, where I will meet with you. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament tabernacle, let, let me explain briefly that, that God's presence dwelt over the Ark of the Covenant. There was the, the lid over the box is what it was, and that was the atonement cover, and God's presence was there, but nobody could go in there. So there was a curtain in the temple, the tabernacle, that separated that holy of holies from the place where people could go. And so God says to Moses, since you can't go in there, what I want you to do is I want you to make an altar right outside of the curtain. And can I just say to you today, if you want to draw near to God, if you want to get as close as you possibly can get to God, then you ought to go to the altar. And so God says, I want you to put the altar right outside the curtain. Put it as close as you can possibly get, and that's the place where they would go, and they would burn the incense, and they would honor the presence of the Lord. And can I just say to you today, not only are we an altar people, God's people have always been altar people. All right, this is not an Assembly of God idea. This is not a Pentecostal concept. This is not a revivalist idea. God's people have always been an altar People. And so in the time that I have today, I want to share six altars with you, and I want to invite you to a seventh. Now, knowing my, my uh, tendency to preach long, Pastor Chris said it might take both services to do that. So we'll get, we'll get there. But I want to give you six altars, and the first one is in Genesis chapter 4. If you have your Bible, you can go there with me. This is Abel's altar. In Genesis 4, we meet Cain and Abel, and they're bringing an offering to the Lord. These are Adam and Eve's first two sons. And we don't get all the details in Genesis of, of what the prescription of proper worship was, but we get enough to understand that there was a right way to go before God's throne, and there was a wrong way. Because God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but he was not pleased with Cain's sacrifice. In fact, he told Cain, you need to change your ways. Look at it with me in chapter 4, verse 7. God says to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So as early as the first family in, in all of human history, we know there is a right way and there's a wrong way to come before a holy God. The writer of Hebrews talked about this. In Hebrews 11, verse 4, he said, By faith, Abel brought to God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. So what is he saying? What does Abel's altar teach us? Here it is. Abel's altar teaches us that when you come to God, bring your best. When you come to God, don't come half-hearted. 
When you come into the presence of God, bring your best. He is a holy and an awesome God. We come before him with fear and trembling, the psalmist said. And when you come before God to the altar, you ought to come and give God your very best. And God looked at Cain's half-hearted offering of worship, and he said, that's not going to cut it in my presence. I can see what you're doing. I see how you're withholding. I see how you're just punching the clock, how you're just biding time, how you're just following protocol. That means something to come into the presence of the Lord. And so when we come, we ought to give God our very best. Maybe you ought to give your very best. Amen. Let me talk about a second altar. That's Noah's altar. Go another couple chapters in Genesis, and in Genesis 6, we meet Noah, and this is really the first mention explicitly of an altar in the Bible. It says in verse 7 and 8 of Genesis 6, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Verse 8 says, but Noah found favor. In the eyes of the Lord. Now, I don't know if you've ever, in, in, a, in a moment of weakness, <laughs> on maybe not your best day, when one of your kids was absolutely driving you insane, maybe you thought, I wish I hadn't made that one. <laughs> but God said that about all his kids, okay? So just to give you some perspective, don't look at them. That would be weird. Don't, I hope you didn't look at them. That was... But God said that about all the kids. Like, I, I just, I, I'm going to, hard reset on humanity. That's what we're doing, hard reset on earth. And then God finds favor with Noah. And you know the story. God tells Noah, I want you to build an ark of safety for you and your family and for the animals. And for 120 years, Noah works on that project till finally it's finished and the rain begins to fall. 40 days, 40 nights. The rains pour from the heavens and gush up from the earth. And then another 150 days after that until the water finally receded enough for, for the ark to, to rest and nestle on Mount Ararat. Then months go by until finally the earth is dry enough for Noah to step out of the ark. And he finally steps out on a sunshiny day. It's like Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon for the first time, you know. He steps out onto the newly purified earth. But instead of planting a flag like Armstrong did and saying, we got here first, we lay claim, Noah acknowledged the fact that God is ever-present, that God was there before I came. And so instead of planting a flag, Noah built an altar. Noah builds an altar to the glory of God in that moment. And it says in Genesis chapter 8, look at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. It's the first mention of an altar. Taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Verse 21 is so important. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Noah's altar teaches us this. We don't just come to the altar for salvation. We come to the altar from salvation. God had rescued Noah. The flood is over. He survived. He made it through. 
His family's safe. And there's a lot of people that they, they misunderstand the purpose of the altar in church, and they just figure, well, the altar is for people that's lives are messed up. The altar is for people that need rescued. The altar is for people that need God to fix stuff and, and repair things and save their soul from hell. That's what the altar calls for. I had that experience years ago. Listen, the altar is not just a place we come for salvation. We come here from salvation. And Noah steps out of the ark and he recognizes God has rescued my life. God has redeemed me. And the most fitting and appropriate thing to do in this moment is to build an altar and to acknowledge the presence of an almighty God. Can I just tell you today, if you think that the altar is just for lost people, you need to go see another rainbow. You need to go see another rainbow because that word says that when Noah's Worship. It was a, a gratitude altar. It was a worship of thanksgiving. When the aroma of his worship filled the nostrils of God, God made a covenant. He said, every time I see a rainbow in the sky, it's going to be a reminder of this moment, of this offering, of this altar. And even though humanity is still hardwired for destruction, and even though our hearts are still hell-bent on evil, I am never going to lead with a posture of judgment. I'm always going to look on you with an attitude of grace. Because somebody chose to build an altar from salvation. And if God's done anything good for you today, you ought to be an altar person. The third altar I want to tell you about is in Genesis 12. Turn a few pages more. This is Abram's altar. Last week, I talked about Lot and how he had no altars in his life. In Genesis 13, it's very obvious that Lot is not an altar builder because of what we see in Genesis 12. Lot lived in the home of his uncle, Abram, and Abram made a habit of building altars. Look at it with me in Genesis 12, beginning in verse 7. It says, the Lord appeared to Abram, and he said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Verse 8. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. Verse 9 says, Then Abram set out, and he continued towards the Negev. Now, if you remember Abram's story in the beginning of chapter 12, you would know that when God called him, he didn't tell him where he was taking him. Don't know if you've ever felt that way before. Like, God's leading me, he just didn't tell me where. <laughs> and so Abram's trusting God, but he doesn't know where he's going. So every time God does take him to a place, every time there is a there, he stops and he builds an altar. He says, thank God, I'm there. I didn't know where there was, but there I am. And so he turns it into a place of altar and he worships the God who is good and the God who guides. And if you read through the story down in verse 10, it says there was a famine in the land. And so Abram does something that sometimes we tend to do. He forgets about his identity as a son of a good God. And he begins to lean on his own ingenuity. And he decides, I'm going to escape this famine by going down to Egypt. So he, he leaves the place where God had sent him. And he goes down to Egypt. And on his way, he tells his wife, Sarah, he says, I, I want you to pretend you're my sister. 
because he knew she was beautiful, and he said, I, I don't want them to kill me and take you, and so just pretend you're my sister. Now, if this sounds like a dumb idea, you're reading it right. This is a dumb idea. Maybe you've never had one before, but Abram began to d- devise a plan to save his life, to save his own hide, and he goes off and he does something stupid, but thank God for grace, because God sent a, a sickness to Pharaoh's house, because he did take Sarah into his harem, and then all of a sudden, this sickness breaks out, and he realizes, I, I've messed up, so he, he gives Abram his wife back, he says, you should not have lied to me, just take your wife, take some goods, and get out of town, and so Abram leaves, by the grace of God, he heads back to the Negev. He goes out of Egypt. Now, now look at verse 3 and 4 in Genesis 13. It says, from the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. And there, Abram called on the name of the Lord. Here's what Abram's altar teaches us. First, it teaches us that the altar is the place where we recognize the goodness and the guidance of God. Everywhere he went, he saw God was leading him. God was faithful. And so he just kept building altars. God met me here. And then he takes him somewhere else and he says, God brought me here. And some of you, you're in a place right now, you don't know how you got there or where you got there. But guess what? God got you here. So just stop and say, you know what? God is faithful. God guides. God is good. And he built an altar. But another thing that we learn from Abram's altar is that when we get off course, when we get caught up in our own schemes and ideas, and we find ourselves outside of the will of God, the best thing you can do is to go back to the place where the altar is. Go back to the altar. Abram realized how foolish his idea was that that he was leaning on his own ability to survive the famine instead of trusting in the goodness and the guidance of a God that had led him so far. And when he realized the error of his ways, he went back to the very spot in Bethel, right to the very place where the grass was still dead. His tent used to be there. And he goes back to the place where he knew he had heard from God, where he had built an altar, and he called out to the Lord again. And for some of us, we just need to get back to the place where we knew we had an encounter with God. Ben's sitting here on the second row, and I was thinking about our kids' ministry because he went this past week with our kids to kids' camp. And those kids had encounters with God this week. I can promise you, Monday night through Thursday night, they had altar moments. And I'm so grateful for those moments. I always pray when we send our teenagers or our kids off to camp that God would mark those moments, that they would have an encounter with God that they'd never forget. And I pray that out of an experience. See, anytime I go up there to Carlisle, to our conference center, I can remember a place on the carpet. And and if I were on that platform, it's about where Ben's sitting. But from that platform, I can remember the place where God met me. I can remember the moment when, when I was at a youth camp and one of the students from The university came and prayed over me and prophesied and said, God's going to use you to speak, to preach the gospel. As a little shy middle schooler, I had no intention of responding to that call. I was like, I just ducked that. Give that to somebody else. But I remember the moment. It marked me. And any time I wanted to pull away from the, the desire that God had for my life, he would take me back to that moment, to that place. It's consecrated in my heart and in my mind. 
And that's what the altar does for us. I have this feature on my iPhone, I'm sure you have it too, that whenever I take a picture, it automatically timestamps it and date stamps it and locates it. Like GPS, I didn't ask it to do that, it just does it. And now it does this really cool thing to where every once in a while, it happened again this week, I just get a notification from my phone. And what they did, it just puts a little, a little slideshow together. I got a notification this week, June 20th, 2019. And it's like, click on the slideshow and it, it shows me all the things that happened on that day. It takes me back to that time, to that date, and to that location. And everything that I thought was photo worthy from that day shows up in a nice little slideshow. Can I tell you, that's what the altar does. That's what the altar does. When we have an encounter with God at the altar, when we give God space to really just impact our life, it's like the Holy Spirit. He, he, he geolocates the moment. He timestamps it. He dates it so that for, for years to come, whenever you maybe hear that same text being preached on, or maybe you hear that same song that was playing in the altar call, or maybe you go back to that place where you had an encounter with God, it's like the Spirit of God brings it right back up. He lets the old footage begin to play. That's what God did for Abram in this moment. He got back to Bethel. He got back to the place where his tent had been set, and he met with God again. Let me tell you about a fourth altar. Move a little farther forward in your Bible to Exodus chapter 3, and we find an altar that Moses had. Now, altars for, uh, Moses' first altar was not the one that he put outside the curtain in the tabernacle. His first altar was not in the tent of meeting in the wilderness. His first altar was not even on Mount Sinai when he got the Ten Commandments from God. The first altar experience that we know of that Moses had happened on the backside of the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He had led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a burning bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. He said, I'm going to go over and I'm going to see it. Now that word for see it is actually a really interesting word. In the Hebrew, the word is ra'ah, and it means perceive. It, it means to, I'm going to go perceive it. In the New Testament, the, the Greek, it, it means a revelation. So th there are many, many Jewish rabbis that have commented on this very passage. And they've pointed out that the bush was already on fire before Moses saw it, before Moses recognized it. It was that this moment that he finally perceived it. It wasn't that he saw that, oh, wow, God's doing something brand new. I've never seen that before. It's not that he saw something God was doing new. It's that he saw it. He, he was awakened to it. He had revelation of the fact that God had been doing it all along. In other words, I would propose to you that the bush was always burning. 
that, that the bush always burns, that God's presence is, is always there. Exodus 3, in the next verse, verse 4, it says this. When the Lord saw that he, Moses, had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Notice something in this verse. God didn't call Moses until he saw Moses pursue. Until he saw Moses actually go over and investigate what God was already doing. And I can't help but wonder when I read this, how many times had Moses passed that same spot? We know from scripture he spent 40 years in that wilderness, watching his father-in-law's sheep. 40 years delaying the call and purpose that God has for his life. And I, I don't know if God needed it to take that long or if maybe Moses was like a lot of us and we just come and, and we sit and we say, God, I'm waiting on you. God, I'm waiting on you. God, I'm ready. I'm just waiting on you. And God's saying, no, 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 son, I'm waiting on you. The bush always burns. The ground is always holy. I'm waiting on you to get curious enough about what I'm doing. I'm waiting on you to get enough passion and desire to go and investigate my presence. When he saw Moses go over, God called his name. So can I tell somebody today, if you would actually turn up the intensity on your pursuit of God's presence, God will begin to say your name. God will begin to give you the direction. So Moses' altar teaches us this. God isn't hiding. He's not hiding today. God isn't hiding from you. The bush is always burning. And God will call you by name if he sees you pursuing his presence. The word of the Lord says in Hebrews eleven six, he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Let me tell you about a fifth altar. After Moses is gone, Joshua becomes the leader of the nation of Israel. He leads them all the way to the place of the Jordan River. And God speaks to him about leading the people to cross over the Jordan. The story is in Joshua chapter 4. They're on the banks of the Jordan, and God gives him specific instructions on something that he wants to be done. He wants 12 stones to be taken out of the riverbed when you cross over. I want you to have 12 men, one from each tribe in Israel, take a stone from right in the middle of the Jordan, where the priests are standing holding the ark. And I want you to bring it over to the other side with you. I want you to look at it with me in Joshua chapter 4. Let's pick it up in verse 6. Here's what God says the reason for doing this is. He says, this is to serve as a sign among you. And then he says, in the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Here's what Joshua's altar teaches us. The altar reminds us of what God has done for us. It's so important that we have altars in our life so that we can remember what God has done. The altar was never intended to just be a place for crisis. The altar should be a place of remembrance. 
that we recognize that God has done great things. And he says, not only is it going to be a place that you remember what God has done, but this altar testifies to the next generation. This altar is going to testify to those who come behind us. God's doing incredible, incredible things in this church right now. God's doing amazing things. But I want to tell you, I don't want the next generation to come and us to hand them the baton and they look at the, the, the crowd of people and the, the facilities that have been built and the renovations that have taken place and the programs that are blessing the community and they go, wow, I guess these folks were just really organized. I guess they just really had a good plan. No, 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 it's really, really critical that when the next generation comes up that they look at you and me and they say, man, these people believe God big. They believe God in the midst of impossibility. Amen. And Joshua's altar tells us that when the next generation asks, what is all this about? How'd this get here? How did we end up on this side of the river? How did we get so blessed? How did God's blessing find us? Look at this altar. Look at where we've come from. Look at what God's brought us through. I was thinking this week about the reality that this summer we, we laid two of our altar builders in the ground. Last month I did the funeral service for Nancy Glick and I brought her picture because this usually hangs in our church foyer. And Nancy was a prayer warrior. For those of you that know Nancy, you know that to be true. She was a prayer warrior. Nancy loved to come. She would just kind of slowly walk down that outside aisle. She'd come right over here, and she would pray, and she would often just lift up her hands, and she began to pray in the Spirit. And I'm telling you what, I've never heard anyone with a more beautiful prayer language than Nancy Glick. When she began to speak in tongues, it was, it was beautiful. It was just heavenly. It was melodic. And she loved to pray and seek the Lord. And it wasn't until I was at the funeral and showing this picture to some of her family that, that it dawned on me, the lady sitting right behind her in the picture is Linda Barnhart. And Linda passed away January of this year from COVID. And we just had her funeral service on Friday. And I want to tell you, Linda was a prayer warrior. Linda got saved in 1978 when a guest speaker that was nine years old shared the gospel. Tell me God can't use kids. Because for the next several decades, Linda was a part of this church, and she was a member of a faithful prayer group that met every week, that have just been praying and, and seeking the Lord, seeking his will for this church. And one of these days, maybe their, maybe their kids will ask, How'd this church get where it is? What, what happened that brought this church here? They're going to have to have an altar to look at. They're gonna have to, we're going to have to have an altar that we've built, that we've clung to, that says, no, the Lord has done this. See, last month was my eighth anniversary as the pastor of this church. It's been eight years. Amazing. Yeah. And I, I, I say that because I, I'm just amazed at what God has done. When I came to this church eight summers ago, there was 28 people and no children. Last Sunday, in the middle of summer, on a regular Sunday morning, nothing special happening, no big promotions. Last Sunday, in our three services, we had 359 people here worshiping last weekend. That's amazing. And I, 
I remember that, that summer eight years ago when God called me and my family to leave the place we had been serving for 10 years and to go in a new direction. But he didn't tell us where we were going. I, I literally felt like Abram. I felt I was like, okay, God, you're leading me, but you're not telling me where. And let me just say to all the young folks, in a general principle, this is an exception. In a general uh, life, life hack here, it's not a good idea to quit one job and sell your house if you don't know where you're going or what you're doing next. But it was an exceptional moment in our lives, and we stepped out in faith, and we believed God. And I can promise you, I had a lot of altar experiences that summer. <laughs> I was at the altar a lot. And somewhere in the course of that season, I read the story in Joshua chapter 4, and God put an idea. I felt like it was the Holy Spirit that put this idea in my heart. He said, as you lead your family, your, your wife and your three daughters, on this journey this summer, Somewhere along the way, I want you to stop, and I want you to do what Joshua did. I want you to pick up stones, one for each member of your tribe. And so we, we made our, our great adventure summer, and we really didn't know what God was doing, but God led us here to Wrightsville sovereignly, and, and somewhere in the course of that, we had stopped the van, and, and we pulled over, and we all collected rocks, and I have them sitting right here in front of me. This is our family altar. And there's six stones in here because my daughters insisted that the dog have one too. So there's, we picked those six stones up and we took them back to the van and we kept going. And, and the first night that we moved into the house that the church owns and we were officially the pastors of this church, we stood together and we stacked our stones and we had a moment with God, and I told them about this story, and I reminded them, girls, every time you see these stack of stones sitting on the top of our piano in our living room, I want you to remember that it was God who was faithful. It was God who brought us here. It was God who sovereignly orchestrated and directed our steps. And one day, your kids and my kids, that we're going to pass the baton to them, and they're going to look at everything that is Wrightsville Assembly of God, and they better have an altar to look back at. I don't want our testimony to be, wow, he had some really good strategies. Wow, they had some really great leaders in the church. No, the testimony of this church needs to be God was faithful. God supernaturally parted the waters. God made a way. And Joshua's altar reminds us of what God has done. And it testifies to the next generation. The last altar I want to tell you about is Samuel's altar. Years later, after Joshua had died, Samuel was the leader of the people of Israel. And he really had the same idea as Joshua in mind, but he kind of added another dimension to it. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, the nation of Israel is being attacked by the Philistines. They're literally encroaching on them. And the Bible says in that moment, instead of sending the troops out, Samuel takes a lamb and places it on the altar and he makes a sacrifice. Just get this picture in your mind. I mean, I mean, it sounds nice when you're reading it in the scripture, you know, with rose-colored glasses. But imagine you're the Israelites. Imagine that you're looking and you're seeing the enemy coming and you're, you're waiting for the quarterback to call the next play. You know, what, what are we going to do here? Samuel goes and he just says, I'm going I'm to make an offering. 
I'm going to build an altar. Yeah, I read that. I, I can't help but wonder if we would spend less time attacking our enemies and more time attacking the altar if God wouldn't fight our battles for us. Because that's exactly what God did for Samuel. With a thunderclap, God caused confusion in the camp of the Philistines and the enemy was routed that day. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 7, the Bible says that Samuel did something significant. 1 Samuel 7 verse 12, it says, Then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shin. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. That's what Ebenezer means. And so Samuel kind of took Joshua's altar and he, and he added another dimension to it. Samuel's altar teaches us not only is God faithful, not only was God faithful, but God will continue to be faithful. That's why he said, thus far, the Lord has, when you see this altar, remember this, God was faithful, but God's not finished. When you get to this point, know that you're not at the finish line. Know that he who began a good work in you shall bring it to completion. This is an important altar. Sometimes we just need to have an altar moment with God that acknowledges the fact that God has brought me here, but God's not finished leading my life. The God who brought us here will take us there. So far, so God. And Samuel said, let's set up a stone right here to remind us that God was faithful and God will be faithful. There's six altars I've told you about. Now I want to invite you to experience a seventh one with me. As the worship team comes, I want to invite you to take the communion elements that are in the cup holder in front of you. As we get ready to receive communion in just a moment, we'll do it together, but I want to invite you to go ahead and peel that clear cellophane layer back to remove the bread. And in a moment, you can pull the plastic tab back to open the cup. But I, I want to just, I want you to see this altar in light of all the altars that we've already talked about. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18, it puts all the altars that we've mentioned and all the other ones in the Old Testament in context. This is what it says. Look at it with me. Hebrews 7, verse 18. It says, The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Now, he didn't say the former motivation was set aside. He just said the former regulation was set aside. In other words, thank God, we don't have to burn incense outside of the curtain. We don't have to light the lamps. We don't have to sacrifice an animal because all of those things were temporary measures. And all of those things have been set aside. And a better hope is now introduced by which we draw near to God. What's the better hope? It's Jesus. It's Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, goes on to say that we don't enter through the curtain in the temple. We enter through the curtain of his body. And that's why communion is such an important altar. Because we take the bread that 
symbolizes his body and the, the cup, which symbolizes his blood that was shed for us. And we remember that we have access into God's presence because of what Jesus did that day. That we can move into his very presence. You know, it's interesting when you, when you look at the word for altar. In the Hebrew language, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It comes from the root verb, slaughter. Slaughter. I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, usually when there was an altar, something was killed there. (laughs) Something died. And so it's literally the slaughter place. And Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, and he said he would be led like a lamb to the slaughter or to the altar. And so when we come to Christ, we come to the cross. We come to the altar, not to make a sacrifice, but to receive one that was made on our behalf. And so when we receive communion, we receive the bread and the juice, we're we're remembering, we're coming back to the altar, we're coming back to the cross, and we're saying, Jesus, Jesus paid it all. Jesus' blood that was shed and his body that was broken, what? introduced a better way for me to draw near to God. So I want to invite you to come to this altar today and to draw near to God. Father, right now I pray as every head is bowed, eyes are closed, God, I pray in this moment, Lord, you're the only one in this room that knows how close to you we really are. Some of us, God, we're walking in close communion with you and this this feels so comfortable. And others right now, are, 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 they're feeling conviction. They're feeling conviction because there's things in their life that has separated them from your presence. Or maybe like Abram, they've, they've relied on their own strength and their ingenuity and their own ideas and they've gone in a different direction. But God, today, right now, we come back to a better hope to a better plan, not one that requires religious action annually on our part, not one that requires a priest to go and and represent us in your very presence, but God, we come through the veil of Jesus' body and of his blood. Thank you, God, that on the moment Jesus was about to breathe his last breath, And he cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. Your word declares that the veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. That you symbolize for all of us in that moment. You don't have to stay outside the curtain. You can come all the way into my very presence because of what my son accomplished on the cross. So Jesus, whether we feel far or whether we feel close, God, today in this moment, may we draw near. May we come closer to your presence. May we lay our sin down at the place where it was paid for, at the foot of the cross. And we draw near to our Savior. In Jesus' name, Lord, we draw near through your blood and through your body. If you're ready to receive today, go ahead and eat the bread and drink the juice.
once you've received communion, you can put that cup back in the cup holder. And I'm going to invite you to stand with me all over this room. I want to close in a prayer today, and I want you to know this, this message today was, was not so that you would, you know, go out and find your own pile of rocks, though maybe you want to do that. Not so that you would go and, you know, buy some incense to burn or light some candles. The altar is not about ceremony. We come to the foot of the cross, whether we're coming to the front of the church or we find ourselves on our knees in the backyard in a moment of worship while you're gardening. We come to the foot of the cross. But today, I, I, I want to just close in a prayer, and I want to ask you to indulge me for a moment. If you're physically able, and if you're comfortable doing this, I, I, I know we're still kind of living in some weird times, but I wonder if you would just join me at the altar for a closing prayer. Would you come? As much as we can come together just in this moment, I think it would be fitting that we just make a move towards God's presence. If you can't find a place to squeeze in, maybe just you want to kneel down at a chair. You can stand. You don't have to kneel. But let's just take a moment right now before the presence of the Lord. And would you just open your heart to him as we just pray for a moment. God, right now, Lord, we commit to be altar builders. Lord, not just today, not just in a service, not just in a moment of, of a church experience, but God, may we build altars at the kitchen table tomorrow morning over a cup of coffee. God, let that aroma rise and be pleasing in your nostrils. God, thank you that, God, you want to meet with us in our workplace. You want to meet with us on vacation, God, at the beach and in the mountains. God, may we be altar builders. Today, God, we build an altar like Abel. We build an altar that says, God, you deserve my very best. Come on, would you build that altar to the Lord, even in your heart? God, you deserve my best. I'm not just going to give you, I'm not going to give you half-hearted worship. I'm not just going to be a spectator. I'm not just going to check the box of religiosity. God, when I come into your presence, I recognize I'm coming into the presence of a holy and an awesome God. I come with fear and trembling. I come in awe. I come with a heart of worship. Jesus, you deserve my very best. God, today we build an altar like Noah. Lord, we don't just come to the altar for salvation. We come from salvation. Come on, if God has been good to you, if God has saved you, if he's redeemed you, if he's rescued, you ought to just build an altar right now of worship, an altar of gratitude that says, God, thank you for rescuing me. God, thank you for saving me. You deserve my praise. Let it rise, God, to your very throne. God, in this moment, we build an altar like Abraham. If you're here today and you've gotten off track, if you're here today and you stopped following God's goodness and God's guidance, go back to the place where you knew you had a relationship with Him. Let this altar be that reminder. Let the Holy Spirit of God GPS locate your heart and remind you that God is good, that He is for you, that He's not against you, that He wants to lead you and guide you, that the steps of the righteous are ordered by the Lord. Father, today we build an altar of gratitude. To the God who is good, who is for us. God, we build this altar. We come back today to the place where you met with us before. Right now, Lord, we build an altar like Moses. God, we build an altar of pursuit. 
Maybe you're here today and you've been waiting on God to do something, say something, show you something. God is not hiding. And I believe God wants to call your name today as you press into his presence. Would you just do it? Come on, just take another moment. God, we're, we're not, we're not going to respond by feeling. We're not going to respond by sight. We're going to move by faith because faith moves your heart. Your word declares in Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. So God, stir up a holy curiosity in your people today. Stir up a passion to just pursue your presence, to want to know more about the gifts of the Spirit, to want to know more about the the, the power that you sent on the day of Pentecost, to want to know more about the calling that you've placed on our life. God, we want to just begin to have a holy curiosity for what you're doing. God, we build the altar of pursuit. We want to come to the place where the bush is always burning and the ground is always sacred. God, today we lift an altar like Joshua and like Samuel. We make a testimony today as a church that, God, you have been faithful and, God, you will continue to be faithful. Lord, right here in this moment, in the middle of summer, Lord, we set up our Ebenezer. Thus far, the Lord has helped me. Now, I wonder if you would just lift your hand.